Hi, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. I'm Tim Sonova, and in this episode, we're spending time with a topic we seldom talk about in life, let alone in the workplace, death and grief. We're joined by three colleagues, Melissa Haber, Jim Rosenberg, and Sophia Park, who have all experienced the loss of people close to them during their careers. They'll offer different and similar thoughts on what it's like to go through the grieving process while working and what coworkers and organizations might consider to help the process be just a little bit easier. Then we'll be joined by podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin, who will help us close out the episode. One of the things I often have to clarify when I say that work shouldn't suck is that it's not that work won't suck or can't suck sometimes, but that it shouldn't. One of those times when work shouldn't suck is around grieving the loss of a loved one. While it can be tough to make things better, workplaces can certainly make things worse. And we'll hear from our guests that sometimes it's the seemingly littlest of things said or not said that can make a big difference. A workplace is a collection of people who come together for a common goal. It also can be a place where people show caring and concern and support, not just during the company softball game or the 5K fun run or when your team scores above a 70% completion rate on their objectives and key results. We're human beings working with other humans, and we sometimes forget that at the very moments it matters the most. This episode isn't meant to be a downer. It's a risky move launching a podcast and then including an episode about grief so soon in the queue. In our recent episode, we talked about augmented reality and virtual reality, how many bikes would be too many bikes to own, and mail flow in virtual workplaces. So this episode focused on grieving while working might feel like we're taking a pretty hard right turn. But it's a deeply personal topic for many of us, and a topic that often goes undiscussed in the workplace, so we want to give it some space. Because when it goes undiscussed, that makes it even more challenging for us to know what to do or how to respond when death and grief show up in our workplace. While these things are near universal, their impact and how they're felt is deeply individual and personal. My guests and I aren't speaking for all those who have grieved while working, but as people whose individual journeys might be useful to hear. So without further ado, let's get going. My first guest is Sophia Park. Sophia has a degree in neuroscience, which led to several years of conducting research in neurotoxicology. She was a teaching artist with RoboFun, creating STEM curriculum for little engineers, pre-robotics, and maker technology courses, among others. She's worked with the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She's currently an external relations associate at Fractured Atlas, where I have the pleasure of being a co-worker with her. She's the co-founder of JIP Gallery, a small arts exhibition space in Harlem, and she recently completed the New York City Marathon. The idea for this podcast episode came from an exchange that Sophia and I had on Slack. We both experienced the death of someone close to us in the past year, and we both have been trying to write separate pieces about this topic, and we both haven't been making much progress. So we thought, let's just try and record a podcast episode instead. The topic for today is working while grieving, something that we often don't talk about a lot that doesn't get a lot of space in the workplace to discuss. How do you come to the topic? This past summer, I lost one of my close friends that I met in college, and we were close because of my tie to neuroscience. He kept on pursuing science, but we met initially because we were both studying science, and science was really hard. And it was really sudden. He was very young, 
And I also happened to be at a conference when I found out. It was also a marketing conference that started every day at, I think, 8 a.m. And they had a DJ and lots of loud music and lots of people talking about marketing and selling things. And it was just really tough. <laughs> it was tough because internally I was hurting, but externally I was like, wow, there's a lot of stimulation and there's no space. <laughs> and then I kept on working. <laughs> Obviously, I finished out the conference in somewhat one piece and then thought a lot about what I was doing. I don't know. There were, as you know, many thoughts that go through your head when something like that happens also out of nowhere. Yeah, the next, I think, probably around a month was pretty tough. And I think what really helped was actually working from home because I could just turn off Zoom and just be kind of sad for a bit and then get back to it. Other people might want the company of others in the office kind of doing things around them. But for me personally, it worked best that I was at home and I could be comfortable and I can have some tea or text a friend who knew my friend as well. And I think my hesitancy talking about this in a blog post or in any kind of public setting is that I don't want it to seem like I'm just doing this because <laughs> I want attention. I just think that so many people go through this. And I think that's where my kind of block personally came from was how do I talk about this in a genuine way, especially when I don't have many answers of how to navigate it. And then just coming kind of to the informal conclusion that maybe the best thing is to just talk about it and be okay that it's not going to be perfect. It's like a, a uniquely individual yet also universal experience to go through. And being at a conference and all of a sudden having a different lens to view things through. I mean, you see things differently. You weigh things differently. What's really important. And, you know, when we get caught up in life, we just keep moving. And then all of a sudden something happens and you're like, oh, yeah. Breaks. That, yeah, something breaks. You have a different perspective, especially for people who might not have gone through it, or even if they they do. Again, it's an individual thing. You know, sitting in meetings. I was at a conference a couple months ago, and someone was talking about how they they lost their mom. I think she was ninety five, ninety eight. So they they knew it was coming, and they said still they found themselves for months just sitting in meetings, probably about being about 25% there. There's this disconnect in work. I think when you see like companies that have a bereavement policy that's three days. That's just for logistics, for maybe going to a funeral, but that's not, that doesn't cover grief. There are, I guess, tangible things that a company can give, things like time. And there are also intangible things that a company can give, especially your colleagues, right? And I was very fortunate that my manager was just very understanding, but even getting there. For me, I was so surprised because I was so sad and I knew I needed the time to travel, but I just didn't know how to say it. And I realized that's partially because I've always been uncomfortable with asking for time off in any regards, whether it's for a vacation or anything like that. And I think that comes from this belief that you shouldn't ask for time off. Even in cases like this, I was just very grateful for 
the understanding, not the, I don't know how to describe it, but I think it depends on how someone says, like, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, do whatever you need instead of kind of creating roadblocks, right, for you to grieve. It's emotionally difficult. And then if it's also logistically difficult, then it's just bad, <laughs> right? So, yeah. It's one of those times where I think if if you've gone through something personally or know people have gone through it and have, and just talked about it, I think this is one of the reasons why it's important for companies to talk about it. So you know when it when this happens, part of that is supervisors being very opinionated about you need to go now, you need to take the time. We'll be here when you get back because yeah, you have a rush of how do I get there? Maybe how do I pay for it? For, I, I need to get there. There might be financial concerns. There's certainly logistical concerns. Where do I stay when I, I get wherever I might need to go if, 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 that's, if you're traveling? And so, yeah, having to get up the courage to ask for time and when you might not even know that that's something you need. I have former colleagues who it's like, well, no, it's fine. We're, it's, it's this, we're in the season. It's busy. We have shows going up. I can't take this time. And then they realize several months later when they are in a Walmart and they have to sit down on the floor because that's that's the first time that they've had a chance to process. I think you bring up a good point. I think it taught me in the future if I'm in a position where I need to be supportive. I think I I learned a lot of how-tos and how to be supportive and just be generally understanding while I would think that I would already be like that. But I think in a work environment, it's very different, right? In a personal case, if it's a friend who's grieving, then you can, it's a slightly different attitude that you would take towards that person. And I think that's also part of navigating being a professional is how do you say things and how do you do it in a kind manner. I think that's also something that I definitely learned. Well, you mentioned this up front when you talked about writing the piece and realized I just need to start talking about it and it might not be perfect or the right the first time. Often feels like that when we're providing condolences to someone. This might not be, you know, I, I truly mean this. It might not be the right way. Hopefully it came across as, as I'm caring, but you sort of learn, I guess, better ways to provide condolences and caring and you're right, it's it's complicated because it's also a workplace where a lot of times people check a lot of themselves at the door. It's just so interesting to see how different people bring different parts of themselves to the workplace in general. But something that I also thought about was in terms of that, I can't as a colleague and a coworker, I can't expect someone to fully understand what I just went through. And I don't think it's fair to expect that they'll understand it. And I think navigating how different people react to you grieving is also part of the workplace kind of grieving situation as well. Knowing that there are certain colleagues who will understand it a little better and some that may want to just have the time to not really engage in it because maybe they went through something similar and it kind of triggers them. And that's, you know, navigating that field is also something interesting 
as well, just being mindful. And I think learning how to be mindful also helped me grieve in a way in the workplace because it just kept on reminding me I'm not alone. You never know what's happening on someone else's end. And, but everyone's okay. <laughs> Ultimately, they're okay. They show up to work and kind of reminded me like, yeah, it kind of sucks right now, but ultimately it'll be okay. And you show up for work every day and it's kind of a reminder that maybe you're only like 75% there or 75% present that day for work, but at least you're 75% present for work versus just not showing up. So yeah. Was there anything particular that people said or did that really resonated with you that maybe even thought, I totally need to remember that thing that someone said because that they said it so well or whatever they did was really caring and I appreciated that. It was actually my first day meeting one of our new colleagues who who flew in <laughs> and I just felt really bad because I was just, I was engaged but also not engaged and it was my first time seeing her and we're talking about data and data's kind of dry. <laughs> and then it just happened that she found out and then she told me grief comes in waves. And I think not just within the workplace, but outside that has been really true. Like whenever I'm really engaged in a work project. So when I went to New Orleans recently and we were just kind of running around shooting video content I felt really alive. And in that moment, I really thought about my friend because it's an experience that he won't have anymore. And then even just like what you said with the marathon, I remember running it and, you know, everything was fine up until, you know, mile, whatever, 15. <laughs> and then I was just so, it just hurt everywhere. And then kind of just living in that kind of pain that my legs were going through, I was like, oh, I thought about my friend again. And it really does kind of hit you in random moments. You know, there are other instances where I feel very much alive, and that's when I feel it the most. And sometimes, like I said, that's either during work or outside of work. But yeah, I think that stayed with me and it actually helped me cope really well with it. Because something else that was really helpful was all of my friends were grieving as well. So it was really hard to ask for advice or for words of care. But in a way, it's an outside voice, right? Someone from work, if they've gone through something like that, then it's kind of a good reminder that your support comes from all sorts of places. I tell my friends, oh yeah, a colleague at work told me this and it really helped and it actually has helped other people. So yeah, that's something that stayed with me. That's great. Yeah. When I lost my mom, one of our coworkers at Fracture Atlas just put a card on my desk. And so when I came back, I mean, we never even talked about it. I assume she knows I got the card <laughs> um, and it was very simple. I think she had like two, li two lines and she had, she had lost a parent and it was really, it was one of those thinking of you cards. Let me know if you want to talk. Yeah. There's just different ways of, of showing. Any little reminder that you're not alone, I think, really helps. And it's interesting because I think I'm fairly young and in kind of like the beginning stages of figuring out what I'm doing for work and what I like doing. 
And I always think about, you know, what skills do I need as a professional? Do I need to know how to use Airtable, etc.? And then you forget about all of these, I guess they're called soft skills, right? And I think resiliency is one of them. And resiliency can be developed from anything. But this in particular, I think, is a moment when I felt myself kind of building that skill. Because, you know, it's easy to say, now I know how to do this thing on Excel. But it's really hard to say, now I know how to grieve better at work. (laughs) Right? You can't just quantify that amount. One of the other skills is ability to be vulnerable. Certainly, Dr. Brene Brown has talked about this in plenty of TED Talk and Netflix specials about people who are able to be vulnerable, especially in in positions of leadership. It makes it easier because if you can't, then you wouldn't say something. Yeah, I think that's also very hard because I think vulnerability at the workplace is tied to how comfortable you are, right, also in the workplace. And something that I really talk to a lot of my friends about is how they don't feel comfortable in the workplace. So I'm very fortunate that I can bring that sense of vulnerability. But I wonder what it would look like if you could bring at least a little bit of that. Because I think if you're able to be vulnerable with someone, no matter whether it's in the workplace or not, it kind of expands your relationship with that person. And I talk about this all the time with my manager, where I kind of had some difficult workplaces in the past and kind of building that trust and opening up and being vulnerable has been something that I've been really working on. I know I'm very privileged in that way, but I just hope that, or I don't know if there's a way to grow that culture in a place where it doesn't exist. That's a big challenge. A lot of people ask, you know, if leadership isn't on board with it, is it still possible to do in an organization? Yeah, it could be a team based or it could be a group of people inside of the organization. But if there's not a lot of lot of psychological safety there, then people aren't going to be as vulnerable or won't put themselves out there in the same same way. Yeah, that's very tough, I think, to navigate. I think it's easier in a smaller group, like you say, maybe in a team. But once you start adding a bunch of people, then I think it gets a lot more difficult. Probably the some recipe for life life in general. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> once you add more people, it just gets really difficult. Yeah, too many cooks. <laughs> what is it, the, uh, the research that more than seven people in a meeting have declining or diminishing returns for each additional person you add to that meeting? That sounds like a lot. Can you imagine just seven people in this room and just going at it and trying to make decisions? Well, you know, the irony there is that a lot of organizations have seven or fewer people, but act like they have hundreds of people. Like, well, you're just seven people. You could easily come together and make that decision with just seven people. But it's like, well, we have all these committees and all these ways of doing things. I think about a lot of nonprofits and and arts organizations. Yeah, that's the difficult part of, I think, just being a nonprofit arts organization in general. Or a group of people trying to (laughs) organize to do something. Yeah, (laughs) literally anything. I mean, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say on the topic, things that resonate with you or when you do get around to writing the blog post that you want to make sure you include? So I was actually able to finish draft and I tend to always have more questions than answers. So 
that's kind of how it ends is how there are just so many more questions than answers when it comes to this. And also, you can't just differentiate it, right? Grieving versus any other stress that you encounter in your life. When someone gets sick who's close to you or someone loses a job who's close to you, those are all things in some way I think require the same skills as grieving does to be able to deal with in the workplace. I think it's okay if you don't know what you're doing when it comes to dealing with any of those stresses. As long as you're satisfied that you're navigating things well for yourself in that moment, while that might sound very spiritual for a workplace topic, I think just gauging whether you're okay, right? And being okay with having something that could be a challenging conversation with either your colleagues or someone else. All of those little pieces is how you quote unquote deal with it. I feel like I'm very being very vague about it all, but I likened it to when someone asks like, how do you know you want to marry someone? The answers are always like something like that. I think it's the same way. Like, how do you grieve? How do you deal with stresses in your life? And you say, well, I'm me (laughs) and this is how I dealt with it. But that doesn't mean that you have to do anything that I did, especially during the holiday times. I know it can be very tough whether you're facing grieving for someone or not, especially for younger professionals. I hope that you're okay with asking for help. You're okay with asking for time off because you deserve it in order to be your whole self no matter what the situation is. And I think that's, the more you keep hearing that, the more it'll hopefully stick to others. Trying to be a gentle person (laughs) navigating the world and the workplace when it's hard to be that way, especially now. Thank you for spending time and for your openness to chat. I really appreciate the time today. Thank you. My next guest is Melissa Haber. She currently is the Assistant Director of Volunteer and Student Services for the Montefiore Medical Center. She has a Master's of Arts in Health Advocacy, also degrees and background in Arts Administration and Journalism. She's a certified translation professional. And fun fact, Melissa and I worked together in my first job in New York City nearly 20 years ago. It was my first stint as an executive director where she witnessed me making a myriad of mistakes, and to her credit, she still agrees to be my friend after all of these years. Can you talk about your intersection with the topic? My very first intersection was actually when we worked together and my father died, and it was... He was in his 50s, certainly not expected, but awkward because I had to leave the country very quickly and wasn't really sure how long it would be, and then flew back. And I was new, I think, at the job, so it's not like I had all this time to take off, which was really excruciating. But I came back and sort of jumped back in very quickly. And then, like five years later, I lost a baby while her surviving twin sister was very, very sick in the NICU. And she was in the NICU for five months. But in any case, I went back to work without having really processed the loss of one of them. 
and the fact that the other one could go at any minute. So it was, it was an interesting going back to work and jumping into gala planning. Certainly changes prioritization and just view on life and importance. It doesn't, and then it doesn't because it the stuff still has to happen. So whether you're sad or happy, it it still has to happen. Well, in that context, coming back in into work, what was helpful? What did people in your workplace do that were helpful, and what wasn't so helpful? It's hard because it's you know there's not every day is the same. And there's days when you really want to talk about it, and there's days when you really don't, and you can't expect people to read your mind and know today is the day when I want to talk about it. But I think that in very small, close workplaces, people give you the freedom and the space to just jump in and out if needed. And when it when it's a tight-knit group, it's a little easier. You can say, I'm having a hard day today. When it's a bigger situation, you kind of just go with the flow and do what you have to do. I think what's not helpful is when when people avoid you because they're uncomfortable. And that's, I mean, death is a part of life, right? And like, it's worse when it's a child, obviously, or a young parent. But like, you have to deal with that. Avoiding the person turning around and you see them walking down the hall is probably not the most helpful way to deal with it. And People will say stupid things, but it's better that you're trying, I guess. I was just saying to one of my colleagues that one of the least helpful things that people can say is like, I can't even imagine. I just can't even imagine. And you're like, no, you can because you're putting yourself there, but you don't want to go there. So you're saying you can't imagine and I'm living it. So there you go. But even that's better than avoiding. When your dad passed away, I remember that. That might have been the first time that I worked with someone where they experienced loss. Oh, really? Other than grandparents, which, I mean, loss is a a deeply individual thing, also a universal thing. And so people feel it in in different ways. And I certainly grew up, you know, my dad, he was a pastor, so went to funerals as like a kid. Yeah, death was definitely part of your life. Yeah, so I knew, knew what that was like, but it was the first time that someone who I knew as a coworker and friend was going through it. And I remember... I didn't know what to say at times because it was a different, because you don't talk about like grief in the workplace no. and we were no, earlier No, because you're supposed to come back ready. Yeah. You're supposed to take your three days and then be just like you were before you took your time. Right. I think it was also like, because we don't talk about it a lot and be, I think partly because we were, I, I certainly, I was earlier in my career and I hadn't seen examples of how should a workplace deal with it, deal with it and, and be supportive and understanding Yeah, there's the paid bereavement, which is nice. But then when you come back, you may not necessarily be ready to take on everything you were dealing with before. And I I always thought both times, both when my dad died and then later, the fact that the world continues turning as it did before in much the same way is like offensive when it's raw. It's just very offensive. It's like, do I have to sit here and do a mail merge? And do I have to book the whatever for the gala? And do I have... But, I mean, the world doesn't stop because you lost somebody. But it's just the the mundane is just really hurtful. But what are you going to do? Somebody still has to do it. And if it's a small staff, there's nobody there to back you up. I mean, here, 
in a major medical center, we hired hemp's. But, you know, it was certainly not the case when we worked together. Well, I wonder what it looks like in smaller organizations to say, what might it look like? Why don't we hire temps? Because well, there's no money. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. 20 years ago, that's, that's the knee, knee-jerk response that I would have given as well. And right. because money, it's you know, resource scarcity. Is- and there's a train, there's a learning curve, right? So you're going to train somebody to do what the person does and then... So yeah, it's it's clunky, it's awkward, but I think having somebody come back full time and full force when their brain is just honestly not there is also not great for productivity. You know, not that that should be the main concern, but it's business. Often wonder if there's bereavement temping. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here, and this is clearly going to be the part of the podcast that gets cut, but I'm going to pocket this this one as an idea, like what might it look like for there to be assistance around this, yeah. recognizing people don't come back, maybe even 50% for a long time. It could be 25% for months. Yeah. We had somebody here who passed away a few months ago, and it was an associate. It was an employee, not a family member, but he was young, or super young, like in his 30s, I want to say died in his sleep. It was a very unexpected. But they they have this employee assistance program and they swooped in and they were available and anybody, any colleagues who wanted to talk, they were set up in a conference room and they rented a van so people could go to the funeral. So there was like a lot of support for colleagues and the family. But this, you know, we have like 40,000 employees. It's, yeah, there should be if it, there weren't, it would be terrible. But I don't know. The conversations that I've been having with people about working while grieving, there are themes around just be human and... Try. Yeah, and I think we're expected at work to have to be professionals and to get our work done and be on all the time. And it's very hard to be on when you're sad. There's sad and then there's grief. And when you're in grief, I mean, there's like movies when people are in grief and they say horrible things and they say what they always thought and never wanted to say, you know. So it's impossible to be on when you're that vulnerable. And that is totally goes against work because you're supposed to not be that way. Like vulnerability at work is a no-no, particularly in certain industries. So it's, yeah, it's hard. Vulnerability in the workplace makes better teams and stronger organizations. Absolutely. If we acknowledge each other as human beings before anything, before, you know, we're colleagues and or reporting structure or whatever, we're just, we're all people. And ultimately we love our parents and our siblings and our children and we try to do our best. And then there's all the other stuff that comes on top. But that's our common denominator, right? We're all people. Whether they report to us or we report to them or we share a cubicle or we, but yeah. And I think that's what makes death awkward because people, first of all, death is taboo, right? Even though we all die, but it's, you know, exactly how that feels. And if you don't, you can really, you can imagine it. So then that makes it uncomfortable because you don't want to touch it. But you know, we all do. That's kind of the one certainty is that we're all going to lose somebody someday, whether we work or not. Yeah. 
was I think Christopher Walken has a quote, none of us is getting out of here alive. No, we're not. And we're all very good about somebody who's 99 passes away. We're all very good at that. It's like, oh, they live a great life. So nice that the family could be together and, you know, whatever you need. We're good at that, I think. What we're not so great at is like, oh, your father was 55 or you lost a baby. That we suck at because it's, first of all, less common, thankfully. Second of all, just so painful, the flavor of pain that people don't want to imagine, which is why they say the stupid things or they don't say anything at all. When my, the person who I reported to at the time when my baby died and her sister was in the NICU, wanted me to jump into a conference call from the hospital bed. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to do that. And I'm usually one to like sort of not say no. But I was like, I can't, I can't, no, I, I just can't. And the fact that he followed his condolences with, oh, so we have this call tomorrow. Do you want to get on? <laughs> you know, it's like now I laugh about it. At the time, it was like, what? Maybe he thought he was being helpful and distracting me from the pain. Maybe. This wasn't like a bad person. Yeah, it's seldom people who are like, I'm going to wait until that moment and then I'm going to deliver this piece to inflict harm. Right. Yeah, I don't think the intention is ever to inflict harm. It's just cluelessness or just, I don't know, a lack of humanity, I guess. So what do we make of it? What do we do about it? Besides talking more about it? I mean, I think there's, you know, like I said, there's the official policy, you know, like HR has a policy, there's bereavement, there's however many days paid, but there has to be like a structure for that person to come back. I mean, whether they, there's somebody there, I don't know, I mean, we have tons of social workers and psychologists here, so it's easy. But somebody who's sort of like, checking in on the person and I don't know who that would be necessarily, but just, or maybe come back part-time or maybe take a personal day a month. I, I don't know, like some kind. So there's there's a combination of policy and like flexibility, I guess. And I recognize that bigger organizations are less flexible. Interesting though, because the bigger organizations are less flexible, but have more resources to do some of the things that small organizations couldn't. Right. And it, and it depends who you report to. I mean, I work with people now who, if God forbid something happened, they would, I am 100% certain that it would be fine and I would be allowed the space that I need. But what if I'm hourly and have a union job? You get what you get and that's it. I don't know. I think that, I think open conversation, honest conversation is a start. And when there's trauma involved, like, if it's something unexpected or a young person who died or there needs to be some healing because you can't just, once the person's six feet under, you're not better and ready to go, right? Most religions have some kind of mourning process that you're supposed to observe. And I think there's a reason for that, but like a week is certainly not enough. Well, and really even getting through that mourning process you're usually on adrenaline. And then and surrounded by people. And surrounded by people and everyone leaves and the adrenaline stops and then and then you're hit with this wave at the same point that you're going back to work and trying to reestablish a routine. Right. And like the people on your commute are still gonna be jerks 
They don't know what happened to you. And I just remember like wanting to cry when like people in the subway were rude. <laughs> and that's something you encounter every day because people are always rude. But when you're so raw and sensitive, it just like everything gets to you. And like, I mean, like I said before, it, it's offensive because how dare the world continue to turn when I'm in so much pain? I was walking down the street after my mom died and I was back in New York and thinking about something and walking home and someone walked past me and like, man, why don't you smile? Come on, man. And oh, like, oh. no. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going to engage here. Yeah. And that's another thing is that grief is not linear. It's very cyclical. So you could be like totally fine and like, quote unquote, getting better. And then something will just hit you and you're back at that beginning and you're very upset, but it's then, you know, immediately self-judgment jumps in and you're like, I, why am I this upset? I shouldn't be this upset. It's been however many months. I have no business being this upset, but it's so it sneaks back. And I think that's hard, too, because, yes, everybody expects you to be upset in the beginning, but there's like a statute of limitations on your being upset and showing it, God forbid. But it is kind of cyclical. It comes and goes. And, and yes, the holidays are hard and milestones are hard. And that first anniversary and the firsts. What else do you want people to know? What is that saying? It's like silly. Like everybody, everybody's fighting a battle and, you know, don't ever know what, you know, other people are dealing with. Yeah, you just don't know what people are bringing with them. Yes, your immediate colleagues and your supervisors and the people you work with directly may know what's going on, but but other people don't. And they may be super insensitive without knowing or without knowing enough. But it's important, I think, that we all do it. We all face it. So we could be you could be dealing with somebody tomorrow who had just had great loss and not know it. The cashier helping you at the grocery store maybe lost somebody and it's their first day back. And clearly you're not going to think that at every interaction. But I think if we go back to just we're all human and if we treat each other with humanity and kindness, then it'll be okay. But you just don't know if the person you're dealing with is had a great year, a horrible year and anything in between. Melissa, thank you for, for taking time out of, out of your day. Of course. Yeah, no. Thank you for making me think about these things. And lastly, we're joined by Jim Rosenberg. Jim and I have known each other for many years, dating back to the time when he was a vice president at National Art Strategies. He's currently a lecturer and director of corporate engagement at the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee. He's the founder of Workbench Consulting and also recently completed the Coaches Training Institute. He's worked with and for a myriad of organizations around entrepreneurship and organizational change, and he created a letter project several years ago called I Know Something that created a network of individuals sharing their experience of dealing with chronic and advanced illness. So our topic today is working while grieving, as much as you're comfortable discussing sort of how you intersect with the topic. Thanks for having me on the talk about the topic. I've had the experience of, of losing a parent and working while losing a parent. But really for me, the, the more intense experience was that my wife, Amy, had cancer and she, she died not long after her diagnosis. She was diagnosed end stage and about four months later, she was, she was no longer with us. When I think about grief and my experience with grief, I think about that period before Amy died, which is caregiving, but 
the reality is that you're also emotionally, you know that the person you love is going to die and you've got that preparatory grieving happening. And I think about that intense period after she died, that really that first year or so. And, and I think about now, further removed, where grief means a really different thing, really different part of who I am. But it's around that experience with my wife that my experience of grief and work comes from. The I Know Something Project, let me read part of the, the mission for people. I hadn't gone back to the, the, the site for a while to look at the material. And as I was prepping for this episode, uh, I was reading back through some of your work. You wrote, I've, I've met a lot of people who are living with complex illness, caring for an elderly parent, or I've lost someone close. And everyone says the same thing. When it happens to you, it's like you're the first one. Suddenly, you need to find your way through a new world and make constant decisions where there is never a quote-unquote right choice. Millions of us have been in those situations before. What if we could unlock all that knowledge to help families in need today? As you worked on that project, as you talked to other people, what resonated for you in people's stories and going through grief and, and terminal illness? It's a great question. So I find myself stopping to think. What resonated was just how common it was, how unavoidable the experience really is, how much it touches all of us, how, how close we all are to it, how many of the challenges are the same. Whether you're dealing with a situation where you've known for a long time that somebody's sick and you're care, caring for them for a long time, whether it's much shorter and more sudden, whether it's an instant experience, come home and the person you love is, has had an illness or a heart attack and is no longer with you. And given how common it is and how close we all are and how much we share in it, how little we talk about it. How much people appreciated the opportunity to have an intimate conversation about their experience because we don't talk about it. We keep death as far away from us as we can in the US at least, in American culture. In a work context, it's, it's even more heightened or exacerbated, right? It's like, we, so we rarely talk about this to begin with. And then when you add work to it, you might not bring your whole self to begin with. And then something like this happens or, or you don't know what to say and people don't know what to say. And then you just go, you, you get your bereavement leave, come back. And then like, you're supposed to just keep going like nothing happened. And I think part of that stems from, because we're, we don't talk about it. We, we go through the process. It's, it's personal. Maybe we have some friends outside of work who we, we talk with about it, but it's not a, a conversation about like, what's the place of grief in the workplace? We always bring our whole selves everywhere we go. We don't share our whole selves at work. We're not invited to. It's uncomfortable. It, it's, you know, we have a facade we're keeping. Grief's a really big hole in that facade. What were some of the things that people said were really were helpful, specifically around work, but what do you appreciate hearing when you're grieving? What's the better thing to say? And what's the thing you probably shouldn't say? And from a workplace, there's often times where we can be harmful and, and make things worse, but what are ways that we can approach things to make things better? Part of it is that even now, or having gone through this experience, or having been in this several-month intense experience of the person I love most in the world being sick and knowing that she's dying and then losing her, I talk to people who say, oh, my daughter just got this diagnosis, and I still don't know what to say. I want, and I think we all want, and so I hear from people, we want to have the words I'm going to say this, and, and you're going to know everything I feel, you're going to feel cared for, and it's going to be perfect. Right? And my experience is that there really aren't right 
or wrong words. I, I guess there are wrong words, but but like most conversations, I just always found that it came down to intent. If you're coming from a place where you're concerned about me, you want to know I'm okay, you want me to know you care, whatever words come out, we see intent. We're really good at intent. It's one of the funny things in that trying to hide stuff in the workplace is nobody's very good at it. We as humans are just so wired, we're so tuned to understanding the words not said between the words. But if your intent is from a positive and caring place, for me at least, that connected. I could tell that and I appreciated it. If the intent was more for better or worse, like, wow, I want to keep this away. I want to say something so I can move on. This is scary. I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable. I don't know what to do. I would just feel that discomfort. And in some ways, I just want to help you move along as quickly as you could. Right? I want to get you out of your discomfort so I can be out of your discomfort. So I talk about Amy having died. I don't tend to talk about her having passed or left or moved on or not being with us. People wince when you say the word died. It's unvarnished, right? And so something that, that I always appreciated just for me was I say that because it fits my spiritual beliefs. It doesn't mean that I don't have a belief about where she is spiritually, but it fits my real feeling of things. I've just appreciated when people can accept that, not be scared of the word, not be scared of the sort of unvarnished description of, yes, the person I love died. I was thinking about this question, I think back, there's this moment that had nothing to do with words. I used to study martial arts and my sensei heard that Amy had died and she came over to my house. I hadn't seen her in a couple of years and she just hugged me. It was this like, this hug, this holding you, this intense hug that was just this physical way of saying, I am here. And it's been several years, and I remember that moment because in all the different people coming by and saying and the sort of gentle hugs that you get, this like, no, and I'm not letting you go, I'm here, was probably the most powerful, that's the most powerful communication I remember from somebody just wanting me to know something about how they felt for me. Maybe the work equivalent is just inside the hectic, busy, running around day, that intentional sit down, be present, I'm really here with you right now. I'm not getting up to run away in 30 seconds. Maybe that's the work equivalent of that hug. A hug like that, you're not distracted by other things. You're, you're, <laughs> right. you're entirely present in the moment. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. That's other ways of being entirely present in the moment with someone else to share that with them. My dad passed away in the spring. And as I was getting condolences from, from people, I was making a note like, wow, they said that in a really great way. I, I should write this down someplace. It's sort of like when you look at someone else's resume and be like, I totally need to copy that format because they, the way they say that is perfect. A friend of Amy's from college, one of her best friends, Emily McDowell, has this amazing collection of greeting cards that were for, started for cancer and then sort of expanded from there. But they were just funny and they're incredibly frank and they're completely irreverent. And they just blew up. Like She was on the 
Good Morning America and the Today Show and all over the place because people were so hungry for this honest way of communicating around illness and loss. And her cards have just been amazing just for that. Wow. Do you know where you can find them? Emily McDowell Studio. EmilyMcDowell.com. Yeah, her cards are great. Yeah, usually I go to Papyrus because it's the only place I can find sympathy cards that don't have long poems or flowers on them or something. So I'm I'm sitting here looking at the site and and I remember this being one of the fir- I think one of the first cards and in the cover of it it's beautifully hand lettered and there's flowers and it says please let me be the first to punch the next person who tells you everything happens for a reason. <laughs> so it's it's in that vein that all of her cards and and they just they're true they're honest and that's that's what you want when you're going through these experiences. There's not a lot of room left for that veneer of bullshit that we deal with day to day. You just want honesty. Well, and I know grieving is individual. Certainly in in my own grief, laughter is a part of it. I mean, I guess like in life, there are a lot of feelings, a lot of things going on, but that laughter and and joy can also be a part of that in in a weird way, I think, at least from my experience. I agree. I think, again, it's part of that at least for me, it's just part of that honesty and that honest experience of things that even when things are going to hell, there's still funny stuff that happens. Your nine-month-old baby still tries to pull the IV stand down, right? And you're just like, ah, and you're just like jumping around to get the baby and it's, right? That's just normal human life. Like normally that would be pulling the tablecloth off the table, but you're still living, right? You're still going through these experiences. Is there anything else on the topic that you'd like to say or you'd like for people to know or think about? Just coming back to the workplace specifically and some things that that I experienced that were helpful and not helpful. I think the helpful ones stick out more for me. Things that organizations can do to be supportive. We were, even in the middle of Amy's illness, we used to talk about how in so many ways we were rather blessed, right? In that I had a job where if I took a day off or I took a week off to be at the hospital with Amy, I wasn't going to lose my job. I, I wasn't on a, oh, you were 10 minutes late for your shift kind of a situation. We had really good health insurance. We had the wherewithal to make sense out of how you get through the health system. Right? We had people around us to help us try to make sense out of that. But some, you know, a couple of specific things that Amy was at the State Department. She had spent her career there. And State Department has a policy where anyone at state can contribute leave to somebody who is sick and absent from work. And so through the generosity of all the people in her organization, Amy was sick for four months, but had a salary the whole time. And that's directly off a policy that allowed people to contribute. For my organization where I worked, we always talked about being family-centric, but we truly were family-centric. There were things that the team did. One was, I had lots of responsibilities, right? Like, any, like anyone doing a job. And some of those were things that it was essential I did. And some were just things I did. And the team really let me focus on those contributions that I was the only one in the organization who could make that contribution, you know, that particular way of solving a problem or that particular process I knew how to do. And everyone picked up the rest of the work so that my workload could go down a bunch 
And I could continue to be a useful part of the team even as I wasn't there 50% of the time. And that allowed me not only to continue to be effective with less time that I was working, it allowed me to feel effective. It allowed me to feel that I wasn't letting down my colleagues. I wasn't letting down my friends at work or <laughs> needing to make this choice between failing at my job or failing my wife. And I wasn't put in that situation. The other thing is that my organization was incredibly flexible about the time off. I was treated as a professional. I knew what I had to do. And no one was checking about, did you let us know that you were going to be here on Monday? That did you let us know how many days you were going to be out to stay with your wife at the hospital? I just took care of the things I had to take care of. I made sure that I didn't leave anyone waiting for a phone call because I was just treated as a professional. Yes, you have important things to do in your life. You know what you need to do. Go ahead and do it. I think also after, after Amy died, the group was great in sort of allowing me to, to kind of stair-step my responsibilities back to my normal job. Those first few months were overwhelming you know, and a bit surreal, if you will. There were just, I remember there were days where I'd, be, I'd go to the office and I'd be working and I realized that no matter what I did, there was no way I could get any work done right now. I just couldn't, I couldn't take this overwhelming experience and put it over on the shelf for a minute. And I would just go home because <laughs> there wasn't anything else to do at that point. And over time, as I was adjusting, then our CEO would sort of ratchet up like, hey, you know, I need you to do this now too. I need you to do this. Those were just some really practical things that happened while Amy was sick and after Amy died that were a big help to me. And, and I think that honestly, any organization can do, it's a matter of the will and the intent to support each other in that way. I've been writing a blog post for months now, and it's, it's about working while grieving. And this podcast actually came out of a conversation with another colleague who's similarly writing a post. It was like, let's just record something because we're never like, we've got these blog posts that, that are not done. The reason that I got stuck in, in my blog post is we're doing a lot of work at Fracturalis and personally around racism and oppression and white privilege. And I, I realized while I was writing that post, the privilege that I had in grief and yet yet another thing that I had not even considered, the ability to drop things at a moment's notice and the means to fly back and forth to be there with my family, to work remotely and all these things. And, and I guess that's where I'm stuck because I'm still wrestling with, with that. I think, as you point out, there's really great things, simple things that make a, a big difference. And I'm forever thankful to Fracturalis, where I worked when both of my parents passed away because I've had great teams that I've worked with and, and the flexibility. That's not the case for a lot of people. The thing that really struck me and that I remember Amy and I talking about while she was sick, as I said, that we would talk about how fortunate we were even inside of this situation where we knew Amy had a prognosis that she wasn't going to live more than three or four more months. But recognizing that there's bad things that happen, right? Like getting cancer, right? There's, there's suffering that happens in the world that we can't do anything about. And right? there's sort of parts of the universe, if you will. What struck us is that there are these layers of additional suffering that we create, that we as a 
community, as a society, as an organization, we create those. The pain you're feeling because the person you love is dying, that just is. But the pain you're feeling because you're stressed about whether you're going to lose your job or not, you're stressed about whether you're going to go bankrupt or not, you're stressed because you can't figure out how you're going to take care of your young child during this illness and afterward. You're stressed and suffering because you can't get access to the medical care and specialists that you need. These are all layers of suffering that we, we just create those. And because we create them, we, we can change them. It's a matter of will. It's a matter of recognizing how we as people and as a community experience grief and loss has only partly to do with those bad things that happen. They have a lot to do with how we want to commit to each other to alleviate that suffering. Work shouldn't suck is the phrase that our friend Russell Willis Taylor sort of picked up from a, a presentation that I, I did. And I often have to clarify that it's not that it can't or it won't, it's, it's that it shouldn't. As, as leaders, it's our, our responsibility to continually be working to make sure that it doesn't. And we're shirking a, a core responsibility of our, our duties if we're not constantly trying to make things suck less when it comes to grieving while working. Why does it have to be so hard? Recognizing as leaders that grief is out there, right? It's happening. No one is far removed. When I would talk about the I Know Something project, with this, this project to lift out the stories and the lessons from people who'd gone through end-of-life experiences, when I would tell people about it, they'd be like, oh my gosh, I wish, I wish I'd had that win. Right? There wasn't anybody I talked to who said, oh, what would that be for? Because <laughs> right? everyone's been there. And so as leaders to recognize that grief is out there, the fact that we have a culture that pushes death away means that we don't... I'm trying to think if I've ever had a conversation where we talked about policies around how to support people dealing with grief. I don't remember ever having that conversation. I talked about other kinds of events, both positive and negative ones. But, and so when we stop pushing it away, we bring it closer to ourselves, we can make choices. As you say, we, work shouldn't suck. We can make it suck less. And I recognize there are trade-offs. When I was working less, other people were choosing to carry weight for me. Yeah, there's financial costs too, right? but it's a choice to say, yeah, you know, we're not getting the same output from Jim that we were last year. But he's a part of this community. He's a valuable part of our organization. We will down the road. We're not going to ask for part of his salary back. It just, just is. But those are choices that as leaders, it's one of the privileges of being in a leadership position. You get to actually make those choices. You get to create that environment for other people. Jim, thank you so much for taking time today to chat about this, your openness, for your honesty, for the, for the laughter we've shared, um, <laughs> and really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I'm happy to, glad I could take some time and, and chat. Hopefully some of that wasn't just stuff that makes sense to me because I lived through it. Hopefully there's some, some ideas in there that, that will be useful and interesting to, to other folks who are listening. Most definitely. It's my pleasure to welcome back podcasting's favorite co-host, Lauren Ruffin. <laughs> Lauren, how's it going? I'm good. You're you're really silly. <laughs> favorite. I like it though. Keep stoking my ego. We just need to claim it. Okay, you're right. I'm gonna. I gotta get a shirt made. It's Christmas is around the corner. Who knows what'll arrive on your doorstep in, in the next week? So in this episode, 
we talked about working while grieving. I had the opportunity to speak with three people who have each experienced the death of someone close to them while working a full-time job. Many ex expressed similar thoughts and sentiments about what's the right thing to say, something that's sincere. And what can workplaces do? Don't forget humanity at a moment when it matters a lot. I want to get your thoughts on, on the topic. Before I started working at Fractured Atlas, my very first job managing a decent-sized team, we started off being known as the D-team for development. And quickly, over like six months, we moved into the D-team for death, which is really messed up. Everybody on this team that I managed as a new manager lost someone close to them in the first six months I managed the team. I hadn't thought about that until this very moment, even though I knew that we were going to be talking about grief for this episode. It is one of those times when regardless of what someone's vacation policy says, two or three days for bereavement is not enough. And also, when you start looking at the science of it, we know that grief hits everyone differently, and it often can last for years. It can be legitimate when someone says two years or three years after someone dies, I'm actually grieving right now. And as a manager, one, I think it's important that you let the, that you let the space exist in your team for that conversation. My mother died 31 years ago this year in November, and I still like every year take November 14th to myself, but it never stops, right? So, and I don't think your standard HR policy ever really takes that into account. You're right. It covers those couple of days, but because it is such an, a deeply individual thing. And one of the things that came up was anniversaries, firsts, all of those things resurface or can resurface. I was remembering counting. The holidays are a particularly tough time for, for me as I think about the loss of my parents. And like you're walking down the New York City street corner, you turn the corner and it's like there's a brass quartet that's playing holiday music. And you're like, damn you for playing the holiday music. And why am I like, <laughs> and I have tears in my yeah. eyes? Oh, so I'm going to have to edit that curse word out or I'll have to put explicit on this episode, which is going to be a really weird. Hold on. Get you. I mean, I said that gets an so, explicit. I don't know. I don't know. Is that explicit? I thought it was just the F-bomb or like a nipple. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'll review the rules. I felt like we were. Yeah, yeah please do. We need to know what kind of cursors you can use on this show. <laughs> yeah, because we're <laughs> we're going to be editing out a lot with me. Yeah, I do hold the title of the only person who's ever been edited out in ESPN magazine. Let's take a tangent here. Did you appear in ESPN magazine? I was quoted in ESPN magazine, and I can't remember if I said if I don't think I dropped the f bomb. I think I said like. And they edited me out. And I'm like, you have rappers and athletes in these things. And I know they curse more than I do, but you give me the little star dollar sign in the middle of my word. What the heck? What were you being interviewed for? Homophobia in sports. I used to do a lot of work because I was like the first black female athlete in college sports to come out publicly. <laughs> my friends used to call me Lauren Ruffin. For whatever reason, there were several articles that had like Lauren Ruffin, comma, openly gay basketball player. That was my life description. <laughs> They'd be like, oh, OGBP's here. <laughs> <laughs> I did not think that our Working While Grieving episode would pick up this anecdote. Grantland used to do a segment on like how did Dick Vitale get to this particular sentence. It'd be so winding. In any case, I feel like you could probably do that with me because I go off on so many tangents. One of the things that came out in a conversation was that grieving takes a lot of different forms, but there's also laughter during the process. And that's natural and human and also can be really confusing. 
I see Tim laughing. It must be fine now. And as not really, you can laugh even in the darkest times of being faced with the death of a loved one. And grieving so cultural and like so familial. My family has a tradition of we tell jokes about the person at their funeral. The first time my wife met my family was at my great great aunt's funeral. And she just did not understand why we were all essentially telling snarky jokes about this woman at her funeral. That's my family's tradition. We we laugh a lot. <laughs> she's Irish and she's like, where's the pub and where's the alcohol? You know? <laughs> I don't know if I told you this. When my dad died, it was at his home and, and I was able to be with him. And the electricity went out in his subdivision 20 minutes before he died. Did I ever tell you that? No. You know, you don't know when the end is going to come, but you sort of sense that something has has changed over the past couple of days. And all of a sudden, like all of the power goes out. And I'm calling my sister who had just run to go get coffee to be like, does this happen all the time? And she's like, oh, just call the power company. So like I'm on hold with the power company waiting to see what's happening. And then I think, oh my goodness, he he was on a pain pump. And I'm like, wait, is that plugged in? Like, is that not working? So so (laughs) thankfully, the, the engineers, you know, foresaw this so it's a battery powered thing but yeah so the power went out 20 minutes before he died and about 10 minutes after he died the power came back on and immediately i thought dad would love this story <laughs> what how, how absurd is this <laughs> like you're at this sort of this, this the depths of grief and at the same time you're like what's going on with the power grid here yeah i mean there are, <laughs> there are always moments like that no you didn't share that story but you were just such a shell of yourself because we have a shared leadership team, the three of us, Sean Pallavi and me, we're just sort of trying to figure out how do we support him? Like one day it's okay and one day it's not okay. And how to, again, like how do you just help someone, give someone some grace? It's really hard. And I don't, I can't imagine working in like a big corporation with really structured rules or like in government. I feel so grateful as a manager of workplaces where I had the flexibility to sort of say, like, just take the time, be a shell of yourself for the next three months. It's just really, really hard in a workplace, but people have to work. Work has to accommodate that, but has to accommodate like the grieving process. It's interesting. You know, you go through the process and it's not the same. I lost my mom and I lost my dad and it was different things. It hits you in different ways. And I can remember sitting in meetings as soon as I came back from leave when my mom passed away, where just guys sat through meetings and I, I sort of just floated through a meeting and I'm not sure what people were saying. It was similar, but different when I lost my dad. One one moment I'm like with you, and the next moment I, someone has said something, and like my mind's spiraling off. And some of it's time you just need to just get back into a rhythm. Other times it's hard enough knowing personally what to do, let alone I don't know what you're thinking and what's going to be best. Just being human and being flexible and understanding. And if this person was was able to do the job beforehand, let's give them the the space and time and and support. I've lost so many people close to me close family members, close friends. I'm very comfortable talking about death. I've been through it a lot. When I was eight years old, my mother died. And so I've I've had subsequent people die since then. As I sort of approach my 40s, it's, it's a totally different experience when you are close to someone or proximate to someone who's our age and never lost anyone. I can't imagine being 40 and losing someone close to me for the first time. I think that is just, in terms of life experience, has got to be so difficult because you don't have the tools to really cope with it. And it's such a new feeling, whereas I feel like death is very close to me, has been close to me for most of my life. I also, as a 
manager and colleague realize that the first time somebody loses someone, like they're just going to need a lot of time. It's going to be really, really hard for them to navigate the world for a while. That's partly why I wanted to do this episode, because it's, it's not something we talk about in the workplace, much if at all, which makes it even harder when something does happen to know what to do. Do you just not say anything? Do you just act like it's fine? Or as managers, like how do you approach it if you've not lost anyone and, and gone through that experience? You want to talk about the themes that you that sort of came up? Yeah, a number of the themes were just to be sincere. There's a conversation that started with Jim Rosenberg, who lost his wife from late stage cancer right after their daughter was was one year old. And he was remarking that one of the things that stood out to him was someone gave him a really sincere hug after his wife passed away. What that led to was this conversation to realize what happens with a really sincere hug is you're entirely present with someone. You're not thinking about what's next. You're you're just right there. So what's the equivalent of being entirely present with someone in the workplace to show, I care, I'm here. I'm not thinking about other things right now. In, in this moment, you're, you're just present. There are a number of conversations that came out of this episode, but that was one that really stood out to me. I think also because my mom used to give really great hugs. And my friends still remark, man, your mom like gave really good hugs. And not you, you go in for like the quick hug and there she's like, no, we're going to do this for like at least 10 seconds. And then they're like, <laughs> you get past you like, this is a weird long hug. She'd be like, this is a really good hug. I mean, that's probably why that resonated with me. My mind started to go like, what's the equivalent in the workplace of a hug like that? There are other things, sort of practical things like the ability for people to trade days off so they could give them to people who needed paid time off and also coworkers who would come walking toward you, see you, turn around and walk the other way. Those were some of the things that came out of it. You just don't know when thoughts of a lost loved one and grief will hit you. It becomes part of your life. Yep. That's so true. That is so true. Well, Lauren, thanks for starting the day talking about grief and working while grieving. Pleasure and highlight of my day getting to chat with you. Thanks again to our guests, Melissa Haber, Jim Rosenberg, and Sophia Park. Thank you so much for sharing your personal stories. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.